Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. I'm going to read the beginning stanzas of the Diamond Sutra. Thus have I heard. Once upon a time, the Buddha sojourned in the Jedavana Park near Sravasti with an assembly of 1,250 monks. One day at mealtime, the world-honored one put on his robe, took his bowl, and entered the great town to beg for his food. After he had begged from door to door, he returned to his place. When he had taken his meal, he put away his robe and bowl, washed his feet, arranged his seat, and sat down. At that time, the elder Subhuti, who was in the assembly, rose from his seat, uncovered his right shoulder, knelt upon his right knee, respectfully joined his palms of his hands, and said to the Buddha, It is very rare. O world-honored one, how well the Tathagata protects and thinks of all the bodhisattvas. How well he instructs the bodhisattvas. O world-honored one, when virtuous men and women would like to develop the supreme enlightenment mind. How should their minds abide and how should their thoughts be subdued? See, even then, <laughs> and it seems to me they didn't have so much to think about. But they did, evidently. What to do with their thoughts? And where is my mind? Where is the abiding place of your mind? In other words, where is your mind? Where is it staying? Where is it? And the Buddha said, 
excellent, excellent. Mm. As you say, the Tathagata protects. Now, this is the Buddha nature, the Buddha himself speaking of the Buddha nature, not of himself. The Tathagata protects, cherishes, and instructs bodhisattvas so well. Now, listen attentively, and I will tell you how the minds of virtuous men and women who would like to develop the supreme enlightenment mind should then abide and be subdued. Uh, you are all familiar with the word uh, bodhisattva. Huh? Uh, there are in there in the... Uh, remember, Buddha came out of... Buddha was in India. He came out of Indian teachings. You know, Samkhya and um, yoga and so on. And so this, uh, the sattvas in the Samkhya yoga are the, um, the frequencies, or the qualities. So we have the three basic qualities of everything. They are uh, the tamasic, which are the inert, and in referring to people, lazy, tamasic, lazy, inert. Not, we would say that earth, in a way, is, is uh, somewhat tamasic. It doesn't move around in great anxiety. And then we have the uh, Rajasic, which is sort of an equilibrium type of thing, well-balanced. And we have the Sattva, which are the very, very fine, fine frequencies. So this is the Sattva part of it. And the Bodhi, of course, we know uh, as wisdom. Bodh, B-O-D-H, is in the Sanskrit the word for wisdom. So the wisdom frequency monks and nuns, those who are seeking that state, the bodhisattvas. And the bodhisattva state uh, is reached just before the Buddha state is reached. The bodhisattva vows to save all uh, living beings before he makes the great sojourn over. And uh, the Buddha, of course, has already gone over to the other shore. This is the shore of this world of appearances and the other shore is the world of non-appearances. Shall we put it that way? Okay. So anyway, Buddha does not speak of otherworldliness, of other worlds. That there, he never talked about there are ten heavens and, and uh, ten hells corresponding relative to each other. You're either in hell in this area and, or correspondingly up in heaven in this and you know, all kinds of things that go around with it that are, have a tendency to confuse us at the same time they seem to be answering so much. Hmm? Other world. Mental structures, other world. So what Buddha did was simply try to teach how to be in this world, how to be with yourself. Hmm? Your mind. Here. Hmm? How to be here in alertness. How to be alert here. How to be conscious. How to be mindful. That is, full of mind. Hmm? So that the inner emptiness, now watch these words carefully, so the inner emptiness is allowed to remain empty. 
um, very, uh, maybe what I can do this way. On what do you rely? On what do you rely? Well, when you're in difficulty, what do you do? You maybe you pray to a God up there. Maybe um, you have a friend that you go to that you can say, "Help me out of this difficulty." You know, these are the things, and you have your own system <laughs> on which you rely. How about if you relied upon a vast emptiness within yourself? Hmm? It sounds kind of stupid in a way that I'm going to put all my faith and trust and rely on an empty. Uh, but it allows you to do what you need to do to solve your problem. It doesn't stand there and say, you do this and you do this and you do this. This is what we want. We want mama. No. And it's not mama and it's not papa either, you know, telling us this and this and this. It's just empty Buddha nature. Mm. Otherworldly religions, if we look at them, have a tendency to be oppressive. They, they're going to push us in this corner or push us in that corner. This is how we must behave and this is how we should do and so on and so on. So uh, how then in all of these corners that you're hiding in and these shoulds and should nots, how do you find yourself? How do you find your mind? if you're not free to look for it. Hmm? <clears throat> Otherworldly religions looking for a world that is far distant. So the teachings of the Buddha are of a very different flavor. It is the flavor of not having an ideal. Not even the Buddha himself. No ideal. So it is sometimes called the journey without a goal. And that is difficult for people to accept. If I'm not going anywhere, what's the point? What you're looking for is you. Now, how far can you move from yourself in order to find yourself? Not that much. You stay right where you are. So, here is where I'm going to find. And here I already am. 
Hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> so the whole thing is to say, just simply become more alert. You know, wake up a little bit. Come on, wake up a little bit. You know? Be a little more alert so you can see a little more. Be alert to yourself so that you can see this original nature. Be more in that original nature. We have a tendency in this world, quite naturally, because of our conditioning, our backgrounds and so on, we want always to become more. We want to become something other than what we are, than this appearance. And, uh, that's fine. That's fine. Naturally. See? We go to school and get degrees. And we learn different arts. See? We should. You know? We gather together all kinds of information. A whole little stack of information that we've put in a box. Nice information. You know. uh -huh. We want to become more. This is becoming. Hmm? Becoming. I'm always be going from this state to that state. I'm, I begin to get a degree. I get a degree, and then I get another degree. I'm becoming. I'm becoming more educated. I'm becoming more, uh, I'm becoming older. <laughs> I never seem to get any younger. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> uh, always it's a process of becoming. I move from, uh, I can see I'm becoming sad, and I can turn around and say, now I'm becoming happy. I'm becoming poor. I'm becoming wealthy. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming. That's where we're at. It's becoming, huh? See, he reads. But to be more, which is different than becoming, to be more, you have to be more conscious. Being is more conscious. Less being, less conscious. When one is intoxicated, one loses the degrees of consciousness, and becomes more unconscious. And you know, Gurdjieff, this was one of his tricks, you know, with serving the dinner and uh, all the liquor that came with it. You know, you had to toast. You're idiots. My idiots. I've got an idiot in here somewhere. <laughs> Come on. I can't find my mind. Um, well, let us say I am neurotic. <laughs> That's my idiot. So I toast it. And being a woman, I had a third of a glass of uh, Armagnac. And the men had the full glass of Applejack brandy or something like that, or the same thing. And you had to drink it all down at a gulp. 
And so here, every you go around the table, and everybody is, they're idiots, toasting their idiots. And you have to remain non-intoxicated, conscious, conscious. This was one of his tests. So now the thing that we, you know, and one of the precepts in the Buddhist thing is thou shalt not become intoxicated. But what about your intoxication with your dreams and your hopes? Hmm? What you expect out of life? How you are carried away with that? How we are intoxicated with our reactions. How we become intoxicated with anger. Hmm? You can think of many things whereby one can become intoxicated. Hmm? having your own way. You know, one evening, Jake the barber was going home, and he passed by a tenement house. And um, it was late at night. And he saw this man leaning very limply against the doorway. And so he approached the man, and he said, is something the matter very sympathetically, he asked him, what's the matter? And he looked at him, he says, are you drunk? Yes, so, you know. <laughs> Do you live in this house? Yep. Do you want me to help you upstairs? Yes, thank you. Oh, what floor do you live on? Second. So with a great deal of difficulty, Jake half dragged and half carried this wilting man up this very dark stairway to the second floor. Is this your apartment? Yes. You know, his eyes are not even open. And this alcoholic lumber, you know, sort of. <clears throat> so Jake opens the door. <clears throat> it wasn't locked, you know, and he shoved the drunk inside. Then he groped his way back down the stairs. But now as he's going through the foyer, he made out the dim outline of another man, apparently in worse condition than the first, you know. What's the trouble, he asked. Are you drunk, too? Yes, came a very feeble reply, you know. Do you live in this house also? Yes. Don't tell me you live on the second floor. Yes. So again, this other man, Jake carried, dragging this person to the second floor, pushed open the same door, and shoved the man inside this dark room. Now he gropes his way down the stairs again, and he's going out of the building, and he sees another man 
you know. Evidently worse off than the other two because he's got bruises and he's disheveled and he's bleeding, you know. And uh, he was about to approach him and offer him also some assistance. When the man darted into the street, and there happened to be a policeman coming by. So he threw himself into the arms of the policeman. He says, oh, sir, he says, protect me from this man. Protect me from this man. All night long, he's been doing nothing but dragging me upstairs and throwing me down the elevator shaft. <laughs> That's what we do when we get intoxicated. We do the wrong things. We don't seem to have any control over anything. We just... And we get thrown down the elevator shaft so we can start over again. Yeah. When you are very alert, I mean really alert, this consciousness is, 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 is there being alert, you know, holding. Have you watched it? No. There's a very different quality. There's a very different feel about you. Uh, there's something of a solidity that is quite tangible is present. Very alertness. Hmm? Oh, when you're more unconscious, you know, intoxicated, you know, you just go dragging by. The whole day it drags by and you drag with it. You know, you're sleepy and you're droopy and uh, you're like a zombie. There's nothing together. So Buddha's message also is the consciousness. It was Jesus' message, it's Buddha's message. Consciousness. And for no other reason except to be conscious. To be conscious. So who is conscious? Who is it? that is conscious. What is consciousness? What is consciousness? You live with it day in and day out and day in and day out and night in and night out. Who are you? What are you? What is this consciousness that we are forever talking about? Hmm? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> the term pranya, because this is the, uh, the Diamond Sutra in the Sanskrit, has a, uses the term pranya, which is wisdom. It's a Buddha wisdom. The Buddha wisdom, this pranya, is the nature of all men and women, all of them. It's not something you're going to go out and get, it's not something you're going to manufacture. It is what you already are. 
Hmm? The great fundamental of mind is wisdom. If you can find your mind, you have found wisdom. Now, we have it. Wisdom. The fundamental of mind. What is your attitude toward it? Your attitude toward the fundamental mind determines something about your practice of meditation. Do you believe, do you think, that there is such a thing as this wisdom that is the ground of mind? Does it exist? Hmm? Or have you ever thought about it? Have you ever given a thought to this wisdom that is mind? If you say, yes, well, I've thought about that. <laughs> there is a ground of mind. There is wisdom. Then I ask you, where is its abiding place? Where does it abide? Where does it live? Where does it stay? Where does your mind stay? That's <clears throat> your mind. You've got to know something about it, huh? Yeah. Where is it? In your toes? In your ears? The tip of your nose? Where is it? Hmm? Now, at this assembly of monks, all so long ago, 1,250 of them, I don't know why they decided on that number, but he had a lot of, he had a big following. In this group, there were many who had not attained because of their disbelief or unbelief or their uncertainty. What the Buddha taught and what they held in their minds, that is, their conditioning, what they had previously been taught, were in conflict. Hmm? So they doubted what he said. They couldn't resolve this conflict. So this man, whom they call the World Honored One, was obliged to use many means to weed out their doubts. And he used many means to awaken them to what they were. Doubt is fine. You know, and I have said it before, you know, there is a great doubt, and it's fine to have it, really. But all these picayunish little doubts, and everything. And another thing, you can cling to the little ones and you can cling to the big ones far too long. You should resolve something in yourself. Clinging. So doubts must be uprooted so that fundamental wisdom can
can it be manifest? So this is and the, the sutra, the thread, uh, this diamond wisdom that he used to cut off their doubts, to remove the false concepts of both the worldly and the holy. I think in your subconscious you would be very surprised to find what is there as to what you think is holy. <laughs> so what he wanted to do was to eliminate their perverted views. Then there's wisdom. Hmm? Then only could they really believe that their minds were pure and clean, which your mind is. Pure and clean. Hmm? And so this sutra is called the Diamond Sutra. It is the great cutter of doubt. Because a diamond can cut anything, but not anything can cut a diamond. Hmm. <clears throat> Now, it is in background of this thing, it is thought by some that actually Nagarjuna wrote this or enlarged upon it on something that the Buddha said, and thereby comes his Diamond Sutra. <clears throat> and Kumarajiva, uh, in the fourth century, then took the Sanskrit sutra to China and translated it into Chinese, and therefore there is a copy of it, and the Chinese now has been translated into the English. Otherwise, I would have been lost. Vasubandhu was the 21st patriarch in the succession of Buddha, and he had a monastery in northern India. And it was at this monastery, as you know, that Madame Blavatsky spent six years in the Vasubandhu's uh, monastery that he had founded. Vasubandhu said that there are 27 doubts in this sutra. Hmm? So now we must understand that in our discriminatory state, A great deal is hidden in a written word. Hmm? Many people have missed real meaning by clinging to the words. If you cling to the word, you do not get the real idea of what is behind hmm? that the words are trying to point to. And it is through Ananda that we have, if it comes from the Buddha, that we have what we have of the Sutra. By Ananda, you know, he lived for 40 years, more than 40 years, with the Buddha and was his attendant. <clears throat> he used to watch him at night and uh, you know, watched him all the time, this, this man that he loved so. <clears throat> and he, Ananda, of course, was the one with the remarkable memory. 
So after the Buddha's death, why so many of the monks turned to him and uh, asked him, what did the Buddha say about this and what did the Buddha say about that? <clears throat> and he would answer them. But he began all of his rememberings with, thus have I heard. And taking nothing for himself. <clears throat> he didn't say, well, this is what I understand or this is what I understood. This is what I understood what he meant and uh, I'll tell you this. <clears throat> He's only... Thus have I heard. <clears throat> and he goes in, Ananda goes into great detail when he talks about it, <clears throat> about the movements of this man. He put on a robe. He picked up his bowl. He went into the town. He begged for alms. He came back to the ashram. He ate what was in the bowl. He washed the bowl. He took off his robe. He washed his feet. He sat down and arranged the clean robe all around him. Hmm? Lots of detail. We, don't, we can't be bothered with that. Huh? Yeah. But over and over and over and over, Ananda goes, in this, goes on in this way. He did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, you know. <clears throat> and he's pointing to something. He is pointing to how mindful the Buddha was. He did everything with his mind. Hmm? I'm ready. No. Mind picked it up. Mind put it down. Hmm? There's a reason for all of that detail and reiteration. Hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> now, the word diamond, of course, we think of something very brilliant and hard and sharp that cuts. And we have franya, the wisdom, the wisdom that cuts. And uh, then we have the Paramita, so here we have this, the name of the, the uh, sutra. Diamond Pranya Paramita, huh? Means reaching the other shore. This shore, as I said, is our worldly mind, the appearances, the world of appearances. The other shore is the Buddha mind. the fundamental mind of wisdom, right? <clears throat> so this sutra then indicates the teaching which points to revealing the Buddha's diamond mind. Now that's your mind, your mind, the Buddha's diamond mind, your mind, huh? the fundamental mind which we all have. Yeah. And that that is a cause in our practice. Think about that. If you're really looking at this thing. Huh? <clears throat> because I believe, or because uh, I really think it is so, 
or because I know it is so. Whichever stance you want to put yourself into, huh? There is wisdom as the ground, as the fundamental mind. There is wisdom because there is I search myself. Because there is this wisdom, it is present. And I search. And the enlightenment, what we call enlightenment, the liberation into the, the, this mind that is so totally free. Hmm? Enlightenment is the effect or the result. Because it is, I can do. Yeah. One does not sit in meditation waiting for enlightenment. One observes the mind. One directs one's attention to the mind. Now, for a long time, all the lay people, you know, the monks and the nuns and everybody who came and went, were filled with a lot of doubt. When the Buddha talked, you know, very controversial, uh, one time he would talk about that which is a non-existing. Existing means to stand out. This is existing. Where is the non-existing in this? It is there. <clears throat> one time he would talk about the non-existing which we would call maybe the noumenal world, and at another time he would talk about the existing, which is the phenomenal world, the world of appearances. Sometimes he praised, sometimes he blamed, sometimes he would scold, sometimes he would exhort, you know. His words were never, ever about a fixed thing. So you, when you left, you could, somebody asked you what he talked about, you'd say, well, I don't know. Yeah? Those who listened to him because they wanted a fixed way to go. Now you take this step, and now you take this step, and now you take this step, like a bunch of little kids, you know? Well, even not even that, because babies don't do that. He does what he wants back there, huh? You don't have to tell him, now use your left foot, now use your right foot. No. <laughs> so those who listened to him had their doubts. They didn't know where to go. They had their doubts. And there were even some of the elder disciples who doubted. So after 30 years of teaching they had listened to, they doubted. And this problem remains today. People doubt. You're not telling me what I want to hear, so how do I know what's going on? Hmm. Yeah. Then this one eventful day, Sabuti perceived something in this man, Buddha, that he had never seen before. He saw something. Huh? And suddenly, you know, he wanted to praise him. He wanted to show his love to him. You know, he wanted to respond to what he had seen. He'd been there all the time, but finally he saw it. You know? 
So he got up, and was as was the custom, he bared his right shoulder, and he knelt on his right knee, and he made a gusho. Yeah. Now, if you watch, well, I've seen the Dalai Lama do this. It, it's quite impressive, because, you know, he's got a lot to go with it, huh? Before he gave a talk, uh, there in Colorado once, before he gave a talk, this is what he did. And when he got shows, boy, you know, to the fundamental mind, to the wisdom, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's what you're bowing to, isn't it? Whenever you bow. You don't bow to a person. That would be silly. Yeah. So this Subhuti, he, he perceived something that he hadn't seen before. <laughs> and he says to him, you know. And so the Buddha took advantage of what Subhuti was doing so that he could, and he could see the doubts in the assembly of monks. And he used this occasion then to cut them off so he could reveal to them mind. He used his mind, this diamond mind, to cut for their awakening. Yeah. So the aim of this whole sutra is to cut doubt and awaken faith. Awakening faith in Buddhism is somewhat different than it is in the faith in Christianity, you know, as we think of it by and large here in the United States. Faith in the Lord we have, but he's far away. Hmm? So, faith in your own mind. Faith in your own mind. What is it St. Paul says? Faith is the uh, substance of hope, the evidence of things not seen. But then, <clears throat> what actually is faith? It is something. What is faith? Hmm? <clears throat> How does it appear? What does it look like? Faith. It is the evidence of things not seen. It is evidence. So what does it look like? For students of truth, if truth is what you're seeking, if it should be so, you should question yourself frequently. Are you really looking for truth? Or are you looking for some self-aggrandizement? Somebody to come and pat you on the head and say, boy, you're brilliant. Are you really looking for truth? Hmm? Or are you looking for comfort? Are you looking for solace? Just truth. Just truth. Difficult to swallow at times. Just truth. And it comes out of you. And you must see it, like you would see faith, like you would see mind, 
Yeah? So for a student of truth, faith is fundamental. Hmm? Just as wisdom is fundamental. Yeah. Both very with you. Hmm. Now, doubts, then of course, are our obstacles. Basically, there are three kinds of doubts. You can doubt the one who is expounding the Dharma. You can doubt everything I say. That's one kind of doubt. Then there is the doubt about the Dharma itself. Doubt about the truth. Mm -hmm. And then one doubts oneself. These three kinds of doubts. You know, this old thing about I am unworthy. I am doubting myself. Now, we get confused in words. Tremendously confused in words. Uh, We listen to the words that somebody is spouting. And uh, we begin to doubt the speaker. Well, if he or she is some kind of a schlump, why, okay, you should doubt. That's what you got it for, right? Yeah. But then, uh, once in a while, you, you come across somebody who knows. Who knows what they're talking about. You know. And listening, still be doubt. Yeah. I mean, like uh, Dr. Poloff was here for the uh, memorial services, and he talked, and uh, people listened, and they shut it off, some of them. It was the easiest thing to do, and uh, they would either, they had to doubt what he said, because they, in a way they couldn't, well, they could doubt him, and they could doubt themselves, but the easiest way in the world was just to shut it off. And we do do that. Yeah. Now, this Buddha talking, you know, to these monks, one day he would speak of the physical body, the rupa kaya, and then another time he would speak about a spiritual body called the dharma kaya, and uh, he also called them the great and the small bodies. This is the small body, and then there is this great body. And uh, so these monks didn't know which body was the Buddha. <laughs> was it the Rupakaya or was it the Dharmakaya? Which one is Buddha? Yeah. yeah, and I'm given to understand, because I wasn't there, when the Buddha talked about the Dharma, you know, as soon as he had spoken of it as existing, the Dharma exists, you know, then he would also say, it is a non-existing. And as soon as he had spoken of it as void, he mentioned a non-void. He wasn't consistent at all. He would bring this up, and then he would bring this the other side of it up. Both sides of the coin he would present. There it is, folks. Huh? And this caused a lot of doubt about the Dharma. What was it? It existed and it didn't exist. How can all these paradoxes fit into my head? 
These words don't go together. So, but he was very thorough. He did it all. He presented all of it. He always said, you know, I'm not hiding anything. I have an open hand. Very thorough. Both sides were presented. You have to know both sides, huh? You just can't know one side. You go like this, you know, limping through life. And you know, it's like this, this thoroughness, this little girl, little girl, teenager. She was learning to drive a car. And of course, in her mind, because she had seen people do it, she figured she already knew how. Easy. We all do this, huh? Well, <laughs> you know, seen my mother bake a cake so many times, I can go in and bake a cake, of course. Except you can't quite, you know? But anyway, she dismissed her driving instructor, and she went forth on this public highway, unaccompanied by either an experienced hand or a driver's license. Here she is, going down the street. And she wobbled along in this uncertain course, going down this big boulevard, and a milkman driving a very well-behaved horse turned a corner. And now Molly saw this coming, so she tried simultaneously to do several things. Apply the brakes, avoid a collision, turn out, turn in, turn veer to the left, veer to the right, speed up, slow down, and who knows what else. You know? in her confusion there. Uh, the what else was that she banged squarely into the side of the milk wagon, leaving it turned over in the middle of the street and the horse and the driver all entangled with the wreckage. Now she lost her head. And at the same time she lost her head, her mind, she lost control of the car. And she sped away. She swerved out of sight. And on squealing wheels, she circled the block. <laughs> and a minute later, she reappeared. <laughs> yeah, here she is coming on the scene of the accident again, still wrestling with his steering wheel. And the dairyman, who had managed to extricate himself in that one minute from the mess, was trying to cut his struggling horse from all the twisted harness when he heard the clatter and the roar of this approaching wide-open engine, you know, he looked up to see the same car and the same woman bearing down on him again, and just in time he jumped aside. You know. So a second crash. You know. And this green car proceeded on its devastating way. Now, of course, the wagon was a total loss, but this milkman, he was a natural-born philosopher. He stood in the midst of all of this chaos, all his ruins, and he shrugged his shoulders and remarked to a curious bystander, well, about that lady's driving, I can't say she's an expert, but boy, she's thorough. So back with this Buddha being thorough, you know, maybe you understood 
that he didn't know what he was talking about. And so you could believe him. Yeah. And maybe you had no doubts whatsoever about the Dharma, that there is a law that upholds us all. Hmm? But then there comes this third doubt, and they couldn't handle themselves. They doubted themselves. They doubted that they were qualified. Yeah. Now, these three doubts are dealt with in this sutra as you go through the whole thing. So, thus have I heard. Once upon a time, the Buddha sojourned in Jetavana Park near Shravasti with an assembly of 1,250 monks, his students. One day he took his bowl, put on his robe, went to town, begged for food, returned to his place. After he had eaten, he put away his robe, he put away his bowl, he washed his feet, he arranged his seat, and he sat down. All of this to show that his life, his ordinary, everyday life, all of his daily activities were no different than those of the monks. Hmm? He lived like a common person. He's not like a god in the sky. He was a common person and he wanted to show it. Except that there was something very uncommon about his activities. But strangely enough, not many seemed to know this. They didn't seem to recognize it. So this when the Sabuti did, you know, he rose from his seat, he uncovered his right shoulder, he knelt on his right knee, respectfully joined his palms, and he said, It is very rare. Oh, it is very rare. Huh? Oh, world honored one. Hmm? See, the Buddha's activities, this man's activities, just the same as the monks, but there was something that was very different, which for some reason most of them didn't see. But all of a sudden, this disciple sees it, and he praises it. It is very rare. The not understanding monks let all of those acts pass unnoticed. They're doing, he's doing the same thing I'm doing. See? They were suspicious. He's doing the same thing I'm doing. How can he be any different than me? Well, he isn't. Huh? What is the difference, you know? What is the difference between a teacher and a student? Hmm? It is very rare how well the Tathagata protects and thinks of all the bodhisattvas, how well he instructs them, how well he protects them, like a mother looking after her babies. Then, you know, comes along, which is true, you know. He's in, he's, he asks, you know, Subhuti asks for all the monks that are there assembled. 
How should their minds abide? And how should the thoughts be subdued? He's asking for all of those who were clinging to nirvana, that all those who were clinging to the idea that they were going to go to heaven or to go to hell. This is the trap. I'm going when I die to a very tranquil dwelling place. Don't disturb my thought of that. Hmm? So they were bound by habit and couldn't see. See, and they were impatient to find this tranquil dwelling, this place. <clears throat> so their minds were never at rest. And they couldn't subdue their thoughts. And this man suddenly saw that the Buddhist mind was very quiet. There was no thought of death in him. There was no fear of death in him. He had conquered it already. Why fear it? You know? And all the minds around him were all moving, 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 this to that to that to that, becoming this, becoming that, becoming something else. And here this man was just being what is. Hmm? How to quiet the mind? If you can quiet the mind, you would have no fears. Yeah. Well, a very good example of quieting the mind <coughs> is found in a dialogue between the Bodhidharma and his attendant who became the second patriarch. This attendant asked his teacher to quiet his mind, just as I did once. I got the same answer a huh? long time ago. Please, and the, the thing is usually written, please pacify my mind. Please quiet my mind. Please pacify my mind. <clears throat> yeah. Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind and I will pacify it. Come on, folks. You got a mind you want to give? <laughs> huh? Give me your mind and I will pacify it. And this little fellow sat there, long time, long silence. Finally he said, I cannot find my mind. And Bodhidharma said, there, I have pacified it. Neat. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.